going to read now from God's Word together. So if you have a Bible near you, if you'd like to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're just going to read a few verses from verse 10. Turn on your Bibles. Or you can open page 1177 if you'd rather, but it's probably worth having it open or switched on on any uh, phone, tablet or any other device for that matter. Uh, But it's good to to have a look at these passages. Two weeks on spiritual warfare. Good. I can see that's that's an obvious blessing. (laughs) I I appreciate your enthusiasm and support in this venture. Um, Why are we doing this? I don't know if you want to know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Normally, I would plan out six months, even sometimes up to a year, um, broad brushstrokes, a preaching calendar. And obviously, you have to build into that certain amount of flexibility, and you also have to be prepared to drop what you thought you were going to do and do what God wants you to do or what a situation demands that you do within that. But I like to get it all planned out. But this year, I have left it because March is coming. Uh, and I just wanted to stay open and say, you know, Lord, what do you want to say? As uh, We're not yet at that point of, of vision, but what, are, what do you want to say as we build up to that? And so I kind of left it open and just going along saying, Lord, what is it, what is it now? What is it this week? And I really felt um, that God wanted to deal with this subject of spiritual warfare. So and it naturally... There's two bits you need to look at, so two weeks seemed appropriate. So that's partly why we're going to be looking at spiritual warfare over these next two weeks together. The, the other reason is the vision. And I think this is why God laid it upon my heart. Uh, because, you know, when you receive the vision that God has for us, for his church, if you accept that, then that's tantamount to signing up for a spiritual battle. If you say yes... I want to be about God's will and purposes. Yes, I want to be active and involved in what God is planning. Then you have just signed a declaration of war with the devil. Because he doesn't want you about that. He doesn't want us about that. So that's the reason I think this is fundamentally very important in terms of preparation. And this is why I want us to spend these two weeks looking at spiritual warfare. And this week we're going to think about the whole business of understanding spiritual warfare. We're going to think about the reality of spiritual warfare. Do that this week. And then next week we're going to go on from there uh, and carry on with this same passage in Ephesians chapter 6. And think about staying strong. So next week we'll look at why do... I put the armour on, because we're going to think very much about the armour of God. Why do I put the armour on? What is the armour? How do I put the armour on? And who do I remember when I'm putting the armour on? Okay, so that's what we're going to do next week. But we're going to begin this week by thinking about the reality of spiritual warfare. Look, here's the thing. If we were living in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia... Uh, In actual fact, in most other places in the world, the idea of spiritual warfare, the concept of conflict between spiritual good and spiritual evil, would not strike us as anything unusual or out of the ordinary. But of course we're not living in Latin America, Africa or Asia. We're living here in 21st century Britain. You see... When you go to most other parts of the world, you find many, many people there who don't have a problem with the concept of spiritual warfare because they actually believe that it helps them to make sense 
of the reality. The reality of life as we see it. It's not unusual at all. But for us here in the West, we find it a completely foreign concept. So, I want us, as we think about that, it's a foreign concept, or we kind of say, yeah, I think I subscribe to it, but I'm not entirely sure what it's all about, then it's worth asking these questions. Who are we fighting? Who are we fighting? What are we fighting? And how do we fight? Now, that third part we're obviously going to look at in vastly more detail next week, but we'll just touch upon it today. So, here's the first question. Who are we fighting? Well, if you've got your Bible open, your phone turned on, uh, or you're looking at the screen, you'll see we've got some of verse 12 up there. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. So here in verse 12... Paul, the Apostle Paul, says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But it's very important that you understand as we read that, Paul does not mean we never wrestle against flesh and blood evil. Um, He's not saying that evil doesn't take on flesh and blood. I mean, if I were to suggest to you that that was the case, you'd probably say, have you not switched on the news lately? Because you don't have to uh, be watching the news very long to find out that every hour of every day somewhere in the world, in fact, in many parts of the world, flesh and blood evil is there right before our eyes and we can see the destructive influence of that. Now, Paul's not saying evil doesn't take on flesh and blood form. Hey, look, Paul has struggled with people who imprisoned him. He struggled with people who flogged him. He struggled with people who stoned him. He has certainly opposed evil in its flesh and blood form. What he is saying is, we don't just wrestle with flesh and blood evil. It's not only flesh and blood evil that we have to be concerned with. Look, when, uh, when evil takes on human form, flesh and blood form, it's very easy to see. There's war, there's cruelty, there's violence, there's greed, there's strife, there's racism, there's crime, there's poverty. You know, we see all of these things in abundance. But you see, when we see those things, we see them because they are connected to something that's above, something that's beyond, something that's behind them. They are not the power. There is a power at work behind those things. So we don't just wrestle with the flesh and blood aspect of those things. We also wrestle with the power that's at work behind them. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 12. And what he's saying is, look, until you recognise the dimension of evil in the world, you're not going to be able to understand its depth, its spiritual depth, its pervasiveness, its intractability. If there's one overarching thing that I would want to say today, it's simply this. The extent to which you believe this about spiritual warfare, and to the extent that you understand this, that will be the extent to which you do something about it. Okay, so the extent to which you believe this will be the extent to which you do something about it. 
It's pure and simple. And that's what Paul is saying here. Look, it's not just human stuff that's going on. There's also the powers, the authorities, the spiritual forces at work behind what you can see. And you see, the problem is that here in a Western world, we do have trouble with that. Western mindset basically has come to believe that everything has a natural cause. Everything has a scientific explanation. Therefore, if everything's got a natural cause and scientific explanation, um, then crime and violence and greed and racism and war and cruelty, they must have a natural explanation as well. And so we say, okay, they've got a natural explanation. What is that explanation? And we come up with answers like, it's negative psychological factors. Uh, you were not brought up right as a child. You weren't educated right. Education, education, education. That will sort the world's ills. Really? Everything's got a natural cause. There's some phenomena at work there. It's all about negative sociological factors, bad social systems. If we throw enough money at these bad social systems, we can sort all of these evils that are going on in our world. There has to be a natural cause. That's what the Western mindset says. There has to be a natural cause. And we need to find it, and then we can fix it. And you know what? That philosophy is wearing just a little bit thin. There's a a gentleman by the name of uh, Andrew Del Banco. Andrew Del Banco is a scholar, is an author. And um, he wrote a book called The Death of Satan which is particularly interesting when you consider that in the first line of the book, Andrew Del Banco said, I am a liberal secularist. But he still wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And in the book he says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil uh, and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. In other words, what he's saying is we've, we've had this mindset whereby we say find the cause, fix the cause and we've sorted evil. And he said as it's gone on and we see evil being more and more pervasive and intractable, we, we see it but we don't have the intellectual resource for coping with it. And then he goes on to say something to the effect of we've jettisoned in the West any idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, he says we don't even like to use the word evil. We like to talk about dysfunction. We like to talk about pathology. That helps. And Del Banco argues, as the 20th century has gone on, it's become harder and harder. This is what he's saying with the gulf that's opened up. He's saying it's become harder and harder to keep on saying that Holocaust, that ethnic cleansing, that serial killing are just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. He's saying it's getting harder for us to keep saying that. He's saying that as the 20th century has gone on, what we decided upon 100, 150 years ago, that all evil does have natural causes, that it has scientific causes, that it's to do with psychological and social causes, he's saying basically that is wearing thin. And here's the important thing. The Bible, the Word of God, it's the living Word of God. The Bible doesn't try to say that it has a natural or scientific cause. It doesn't try to explain it away. In fact, the Bible is incredibly clear for us about where evil came from. It came from simply the free will of two races who were created by God. On the one hand, it came from angels, and on the other hand, it came from humans. Some of those angels that were heavenly beings created by God uh, fell, fell 
from relationship with God because they simply exercised their free will, turned away from God and rebelled. And those fallen angels, the devil and his demons, are real but supernatural beings. And while we're not supernatural as human beings, we also underwent the same act of rebellion, rejection of God, and at that point, sin enters the human heart. So you now have a situation where you've got both humans and these angelic beings have rebelled against God, and sin has entered the equation. So the devil and the demons, the supernatural beings, seek to play a part in working on the sin that's naturally in our hearts to keep us doing wrong, to keep us perpetuating evil. Why? Because that keeps us in a state of rebellion against God. This is what Christianity has to say. Yes, psychological and sociological factors do play a part in human evil. They can accentuate, they can shape the innate self-centeredness, the innate self-absorption, the innate blindness, the innate self-delusion that is evident in every human heart, the innate... uh, and terrifying insecurity that's there in every human heart. They can shape that, they can accentuate that, but these factors didn't create it. They're not the cause of it. Sin is the cause. And that sin that's there in the human heart that causes it is then aggravated by the devil and his, uh, and his demons, and that's what makes the world the way it is. So let me just push this home to you, because hey, we're all good 21st century Westerners in here, and we need to have this pushed home. There is a devil. There are demons. And you need to see that. You need to see that, because the extent to which you see and understand and believe this is the extent to which you will be prepared to deal with it. So if you're kind of sitting there thinking, oh, I don't know, that's, that's how you'll cope with it. I don't know. Sad thing is, they do know. You know, I suspect there are people, or there were people at nine o'clock who are sitting there thinking, I don't know if I believe you. There are people here. You're here now and you're saying, I don't know if I believe you. And there will be people throughout this week who will listen to it on the internet or they'll listen to it on a CD or whatever. And they'll say, I don't know if I believe this. So I want to ask those people four quick things. And I want to ask you to think about these four quick things really quickly. First, if you struggle to believe in the devil, would you please at least consider that you are the one who's being simplistic? Look, I know we want to be sophisticated. We don't want to be crude, unsophisticated people. But all I'm asking, is it possible, is it possible that perhaps by not realising the multi-dimensionality and the true spiritual depth of human evil that you're actually the one that's being simplistic and naive and not the people who believe in the demons. Is it possible? Secondly, let me ask you this. If you struggle with the concept of a personified devil, is it possible that you're the one who's being culturally narrow? 
bear in mind that actually the majority of people in the world do believe in this and don't struggle with it. So if we struggle with it, we're in the minority. Is it possible that those people in Africa and Asia and Latin America and most other parts of the world are actually right? You know, they have wisdom too, don't they? So is it right to look down upon their wisdom and go, no, we're the minority, but we're right, we know the truth? Should we not be culturally open to what those other cultures can actually tell us and show us about this subject? Let me, let me wrap that by uh, quoting Shakespeare. There are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. That's what Hamlet said to Horatio. And it's true, isn't it? Hamlet was probably thinking back to the time he and Horatio studied together at Wittenberg and had long philosophical debates. And uh, bringing it up now, he's saying, you know, there are more things in heaven and on earth than exist in your philosophy. There's so much we don't know and don't understand. I'm just asking you to be open. The vast majority see, realise, experience the reality of this. Thirdly, here's an idea to think of. If you struggle with the concept of a real personified devil... Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. Okay, well, if you believe in God, is it just a little bit inconsistent to believe in a good personified supernatural being but instantly dismiss a bad personified supernatural being? And here's the fourth thing I want to ask you. It's the main thing. If the Bible is true, and it is, On your own, you will not be able to understand, let alone defeat, the darkness in your own heart and the forces of evil at work with that darkness. The darkness that's in your family, in your town, in your nation, in the world. It's beyond you. We're in way over our heads unless God is helping us. You know, it's going to take more than psychology and sociology to sort this. It's going to take the power of God to deal with our sin and the forces of evil that are using that sin for their destructive purposes. So I lay those things before you. So, look, that's who we're fighting, the rulers, the authorities the forces, the dark spiritual forces of this world. That's who we're fighting. Let me ask you a second question. What are we fighting? What are we fighting? There it's up there. The devil's schemes. The devil's schemes. Let's spend some bit of time on this, because I say we don't want to spend too much time on the third point, because we're going to do that next week. The devil's schemes. Um, Sometimes called the devil's wiles. We call him the wily one, don't we? Uh, the word in Greek is actually the word methodia, which, guess what, it's the word we get method from. Um, and it probably best translated strategies. Um, and, you know, what this immediately alerts us to is that the, the devil must have an arsenal of weapons, he must have a portfolio of strategies that he's going to throw at us. And when I say us, I'm not just talking about us as individuals. I'm talking about us corporately as the church. You know, this is the community of faith. Jesus died to build a community of faith, the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ. There are endless terms, but that's what he died to bring into being and to save. So we need to be thinking about our our corporate identity. And, you know, 
we are going to have these strategies aimed at us. Therefore, we need to think about these methods, these strategies. Very interesting, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Do not be, do not be uh, unaware of the devil's devices. Or in the King James Version, it says, Do not be ignorant of the devil's devices. Do not be ignorant of the devil's devices. Is that what God wants to say to the free this morning? Do not be ignorant of the devil's devices. Obviously the devil has devices and we have to fight them. I want us to think about what we're fighting uh, because it's only in understanding this, or it's only to the extent that we understand this, that will be the extent to which we deal with it. So let's think about these strategies, these devices. Right, there's a lot here to remember, but I know you're good people, you're bright and you're up for this. Yes, Ben, they cried with one accord. Okay. Look, on the one hand, there are two errors that Satan longs for us to fall into. Because that works for his purposes. So there are two errors on the one hand. And, um, sorry, yeah, two errors. And on the other hand, there are two strategies. So we've got two errors and two strategies. We're going to look at the two errors and then we're going to look at the two strategies. And I think then we'll have a much better understanding of what we're actually up against. Two errors. The two errors are overestimating and underestimating. And these are inferred very strongly in what Paul is saying in this passage. Paul is saying, on the one hand, I don't want you to overestimate what, devils, what the devil is doing, but on the other hand, I don't want you to underestimate the power that is at work. Right, let's think about underestimating. Here's the first inference he makes about underestimating it. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, I can tell you that this is inferred here because the word that Paul chooses to use, deliberately chooses to use for struggle, is a word that is seldom used in that context. Uh, This word literally means to wrestle on the ground with your bare hands. And Paul has chosen to use that word. See, look, if you're in a fight with a bow and arrow or a gun, you're in a battle. If you're in a fight with somebody with a sword, you're in a battle. But when it's come down to a life and death struggle on the ground, that's something else. That's a close encounter. And that is the picture that Paul wants to paint for us here. Don't underestimate the kind of battle we're in. It's an on-the-ground, bare-handed, life-and-death wrestling match. So we know that we're not to underestimate it from that picture that he paints. And then secondly, is another inference of underestimating it here. He uh, He says, he doesn't just say demons. He says the rulers, the authorities... The forces, the dark spiritual forces. Do you see how he's piling up this language deliberately, layer upon layer, trying to show us, I'm not just talking about demons, I'm telling you how formidable is the opposition. And it's another way of Paul saying, don't underestimate what you're up against. But he says, you know, that's one error you can slip into, but the other error is to overestimate what's going on and he says be strong in the Lord in other words don't be afraid don't run don't be a coward 
Then he says at the end, for when the evil day comes and you've put on the full armour of God and you've done everything that I'm telling you to do, you will stand. Notice, again, Paul doesn't say you might stand. There's a reasonably good chance you'll stand. He says you will stand. In other words, yes, you need to take seriously what this battle is about, what you're up against. Yes, you need to be prepared. But if you do, Paul says, if you do everything I'm telling you to do, you will stand. Expect success. You know, uh, I love C.S. Lewis. We all love C.S. Lewis, don't we? We are the C.S. Lewis Appreciation Society in Frinton. Okay, C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters. We all love the screw tape letters. It's great, but in the... Uh, in the uh, in the uh, screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis says there are two equal and two opposite, you know, two equal and opposite errors that you can fall into uh, with regard to demons and the demonic. He says you can either, on the one hand, ascribe all evil to them and ascribe too much power to them, and that's one hand, uh, that's one error. Or he says, on the other hand, you can fatally disbelieve in them at all. And Lewis ends a little quote by saying they themselves, the devils, uh, are equally pleased by both errors. They couldn't care less whether you overestimate them or underestimate them, as long as you do one or other. Why are both errors bad? Because both literally blur the reality of what is going on here. And the key to fighting this is actually to have a clear understanding of what we're fighting and how we're to fight. If we don't have that clear understanding, we won't be equipped to do it. So, of course, overestimating it or underestimating it is folly. So there's your two errors. I also said there's two strategies. Temptation and accusation. Temptation and accusation. Listen, this is important. The devil stimulates the talk that's going on in your heart. Let me say that again. The devil stimulates the talk that's going on in your heart. You know, often we talk about Satan whispering in our ear. Well, there are occasions we'll come to that when he does. But here, he doesn't have to because the talk, the chatter, is already going on in the sinful human heart. He picks up on that chatter that's going on there and he stimulates it. And that's one of the keys that he uses to attack us. And there are two basic ways that he picks up on that chatter and stimulates that chatter. Temptation and accusation. Temptation, essentially, what he wants to do is to get you to have too high a view of yourself so that you do things you shouldn't. And with accusation, what he wants to do is to get you to have too low a view of yourself so you do things you shouldn't. See, the end result's the same. In temptation, Satan is critically hiding God's holiness from us and how much God hates sin. He hides that from us and he plays up the love of God. In accusation, he hides God's love from us and he plays up God's holiness while he's hiding the love. So how do those two lies actually work? We'll look at temptation first. Here are seven devices that Satan uses when he comes to tempt us. The first device is he shows you the bait and hides the hook, which means he gets you to look at the short-term pleasures and totally fail to notice the long-term misery that will come out of your actions. I mean, we know this one, don't we? You know that one. Secondly, by getting you to rationalise your sin as a, as a virtue often. Oh, I'm, I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm not really nosy. I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. 
You see, we can dress it up any way we want to. Thirdly, by showing you the sins of Christian leaders. So you say to yourself, well, he did it too. Nobody's that pure, so if it's all right for him, I'll do it as well. Fourthly, by overstressing the mercy of God, so that you say to yourself, oh, go on, why don't I do it? God will forgive me. That's his job, isn't it? Fifthly, here's a good one, you've suffered, you deserve this. Do you know what? You know why so many powerful and prominent men have affairs? Because they say to themselves, you don't know how hard I work, you don't know the sacrifices I've had to make, I deserve this. There you go, temptation. Six, by showing Christians how many bad people seem to have really great lives. You know, sticking to the rules, sticking to what God wants, doesn't work out that well, does it? I think I'm just going to go and join them. If you can't beat them, join them. It works out well enough for them, so I think I'll have a go. And here's the seventh, and this is very subtle and insidious. Getting you to compare one part of your life to another part. I'm really quite good in this department, so it doesn't matter too much if I actually totally uh, mess it up over here. Yes, that's the philosophy that mafia hitmen use. I'm really good to my mother, so it doesn't matter if I shoot these people over here. You think that's a joke? That's actually how people rationalise that kind of action. Comparing one part of your life to another. And these are the ways, these are the subtle devices that he uses when he tempts us to do the wrong thing. The end product is we do the wrong thing. What about accusation? Now he wants to get us to have a low view of ourselves. Well, here are four things from the arsenal of accusation. First, by causing us to look more at our sin than we do at our saviour. Did you know that pretty much every good book on parenting that's been written says that if you pay your child one compliment for every criticism you level at them, they will grow up hating themselves. Because in order for that not to happen, you have to give them four to five compliments to every one criticism. Why is that? Quite simply because criticism sticks far more easily than compliments do. And it's exactly the same thing going on here. You need to look at your saviour four or five times for every one time you look at your sin. And guess who doesn't want you to do that? So the accusations come flooding in and you feel unworthy and you can't do it. Secondly, the accusation, and this is the whispering in the ear going on here, by causing Christians to obsess over past sins that have done damage, and particularly ones that it's very hard or impossible to undo. And you end up just a miserable prisoner of your own past, unable to find Jesus' release and forgiveness. And the constant accusation in in your ear just keeps you bound there. Third one by making Christians think that the troubles they're going through must be some punishment. You know, this wouldn't be happening to me if God weren't angry with me. And so the voice goes on in your ear daily, just to keep you down, to keep you from finding uh, the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And the fourth thing, by making us think that Christian people shouldn't have the inner thoughts and the inner feelings that we do have. Oh, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't be like this, I wouldn't think like this, I wouldn't feel this. Do you recognise any of these? Because if you do, he's playing you. He's playing you. 
you must not be unaware of his schemes. That is what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. You must understand what he's out there doing. That's what we're fighting. We know who we're fighting, the rulers, the principalities, the stark spiritual forces of this world. And we know what we're fighting, these schemes of the devil. So quick, let's finish up. How do we fight? Well, we're not going to do much on this today because this is really for next week. But I want to leave you with one thing quickly. Um, and that is, the, the, the armour of God is the gospel. It's putting on the gospel. Accusation. Satan either gives you an overblown sense of God's holiness and minimises his love. Actually, that's temptation. That's accusation. Temptation, he gives you an overblown sense of God's love and plays down his holiness so that you do things you shouldn't and think, oh, well, everything's going to be okay, when actually it's not. The, short, the long and the short of it is with accusation and temptation, Satan turns you into someone who is either crushed by your sense of guilt or he turns you into someone who doesn't have enough sense of guilt. And either way, it's going to end badly. So if you're tempted, put on the gospel. If you truly believe that Christ died for you, it will demolish that temptation. If you, if you know the gospel, you know the thing that you're tempted to do. And if you know the thing that you're tempted to do, you know that Jesus died for that temptation. You know that he was ripped limb from limb. And because of that, you know that you can't have anything to do with it. So it will destroy it. And when you're being accused, put on the gospel. The gospel also demolishes this accusation that comes from Satan. When you truly know the gospel, then you will truly know that you are absolutely loved and accepted. And that's what it means to put on the gospel. If you're accused, if you're feeling too guilty, if you're thinking, I'll never be good enough, I'll never be what I should be. If you're feeling a failure, if you're thinking, God could never love me, other people could never love me. Then the remedy is to look upon all your sins and see them as being charged against the account of Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. You know, it's like the wife that said to the debt collector, if I owe you anything, go and get it from my husband. We as followers need to say to the devil, if I owe you anything, go and charge it to my Christ who has underwritten me absolutely fully. We do wrestle Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. But, by the gospel, we can stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us everything we need to, to, to fight the fights that are in front of us. Lord, we know it's, it's not just the devil. There's evil in us, that's the flesh. There's evil outside of us, that's the world. There's evil above us, that's the devil. We know things are complex. 
And we know we can never blame everything on the devil, but we we also recognise the complexity of our sin and the forces of evil combined. And we don't want to make the mistake a civilization has of thinking that everything has a natural explanation. We know that this is a spiritual war. And, And we pray, Lord, that over these next two weeks you would teach us to stay strong. Father, everybody in this room needs to find the ways in which Satan's devices are being used against them. And everybody needs to find out how to put on the gospel to protect themselves. And so I pray, give us that wisdom. Give us Holy Spirit power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.